it's like coming out of school or like going from job to job, uh, I think it can be intimidating thinking that, you know, you might not be qualified, you might not have the experience. And then you get in there and you realize that everybody was in the same boat at some point and that, you know, you kind of have to some degree, you have a lot of control over whether you'll, you'll succeed or fail. And it just comes down to hard work and, you know, a little bit of luck and uh, being nice to people. This is the CMO and Joe podcast. We interview today's most inspiring chief marketing officers and savvy marketers of lucrative direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies, bringing you insightful stories and tips on marketing, sales, branding, and much more. We bring you the best lessons from the best. Let's get started with your host, Joe Momo. Welcome to the podcast, Connor. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, you being the CMO at The Ridge, uh, I'm sure you have tons of great marketing and uh, insights for our listeners. Um, But before we do that, let's rewind a little bit and maybe tell us about your background, your origin story, and what what you do. Sure. Yeah. So it's a quick origin story. Uh, You know, I was born in Southern California. I've spent most of my life on the West Coast. I went to UC Santa Cruz, studied business and film, came out with those degrees, found myself in like the direct response, like social media marketing world. Worked at a couple different small agencies here in LA, ended up co-founding my own small boutique agency that was called Top Hat Ventures with a couple other guys. We did that for a few years. And now we've, we've found ourselves at, at Ridge Wallet. They were one of our original clients there and uh, just grew to the scale where it made more sense for us to, to go internal. So there was like, it was technically an acquisition, but it, it was more just like a, the merging of two companies. What I do now, so as CMO, um, you know, the Ridge is a uh, digitally native e-commerce brand. We sell men's essentials. We're most famous for the Ridge Wallet. That's what was launched originally on Kickstarter in 2013 by our founders, Daniel and Paul Kane. That's a a son and father team. I manage all of of the marketing now at this point from, you know, website design and and deployment and all of our, our marketing efforts. So across... Facebook and Google, and we're on TV and direct mail now. We do uh, a lot of cool stuff. So we've got a big team. We're, we're 25 people. We did about $32 million last year. We were on Inc.'s top 1,000 fastest growing companies. So it takes a, a lot of people to do that. So I'm just sort of um, one of many cogs in the machine that is the ridge. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what, what made you want to pursue a career in marketing, Connor? Yeah. So... It's funny because I, I, you know, I mentioned what I studied in college. I studied business and film and really like I, I didn't see any crossover between the two while I was studying them. I mostly picked up the film degree midway through just out because I had the time essentially and then found that there, there were a lot of crossovers, especially in marketing where it basically just comes down to like the business of storytelling. You have to figure out who your audience is, how you want to connect with them, how you can package things and, you know, from what perspective can you deliver them in order for them to resonate with a certain person? And I saw a lot of parallels with that in, in marketing. So that's kind of how I ended up there. It helps that it was uh, one of the industries where I could get a job coming out of college that had <laughs> played a big role. But really, uh, it, I mean, by the end of it, I, I knew that I wanted to be in a uh, an industry like marketing where there's just a nice crossover between like data-driven metrics and then also the ability to, to be creative. Absolutely. And I love that storytelling uh, piece you said. But uh, what maybe what was one of the things you wish you would have known when you first began your uh, career? Sure. 
I think uh, one thing that uh, coming out of college, I was like, I, I did some interesting things in college and had some opportunities. You know, I had internships and things like that. But coming out, I didn't feel all that qualified for any given role, or it's tough to feel like you really stand out or that you will stand out once you get to a company. And what I, what I quickly realized was just like a lot of people, um, there's no, nobody has like the magic touch or like there's no secret sauce. There's no big secret of these people that are performing well at their jobs. They're just like, they're smart people that are trying hard, that care about doing good work. And I think when you understand that earlier, you realize that like, you're probably able to take advantage of more opportunities than you would initially think. You know, it's like coming out of school or like going from job to job. Uh, I think it can be intimidating thinking that, you know, you might not be qualified. You might not have the experience. And then you get in there and you realize that everybody was in the same boat at some point and that, you know, you kind of have full control or, you know, to some degree, you have a lot of control over whether you'll, you'll succeed or fail. And it just comes down to hard work and, you know, a little bit of luck and uh, being nice to people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's all about uh, your network and uh, hard work. But for you personally, has there been maybe like a specific skill that's helped you excel and be successful to where you are today? <laughs> I mean, luck, luck's a big one. Uh, like that's, uh, I, I don't think that that can go unsaid. I mean, I, I found myself in like, you know, a number of different jobs at this point in different situations. And, and the one like common thread between all of them, and I think this goes back like a long way. I think I, you know, I was, I played basketball in high school, for instance, and we had like a really, our, our, the, the basketball program where I played was like very regimented, really strict. We had to be really hardworking. And, and I think I just developed a sense for what like quality work looks like, like what I was capable of and achieving that. And I think that that's like a common thread that's kind of contributed to my success in, in a, in a number of different ways. It's just like understanding what quality work looks like, what good work looks like, and then having sort of the the drive and the dedication to, to actually get there and deliver it because a lot of people can identify good work and then, you know, maybe come up 60%, 70%. There are some people that, you know, might not, might not be able to identify what good work is like as they switch between industries and jobs and whatever else, it might be easy to get lost as far as like what your North star is. And I don't know. I mean, it's definitely not like a superpower by any means, but I'd like to think I, uh, I'm, above average at identifying what, um, what sort of quality I want to be delivering. Absolutely. It's interesting. You mentioned North star. I'm always interested in knowing various, uh, successful business leaders, North star. Um, so I have to ask you, what's your, what's your North star? Uh, Personally? Uh, yeah, personally. Yeah, personally. So, uh, I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot more recently, just like, uh, what I want to be doing and how I want to be operating over the next couple of years. And I, I think it can be like distilled down to just wanting to work with a team that cares about getting better. And that I think that like, it's an easy North star because, you know, you can sort of create that situation wherever you are, but I get a lot of fulfillment out of problem solving and like building teams and systems and watching things improve. I mean, one of the great things about marketing is we have all sorts of data that we can do that with. But personally, I love people. I love being surrounded by people that that also value those things. So the North Star for me is like, well, how, whether it's at the Ridge or I, I think I, a lot of those characteristics I like are in my friends as well. So yeah, that's my North Star is surrounding myself with people like that, finding myself in situations where we're trying to improve things, we're problem solving, we're working with one another. That's kind of the that's kind of where I want to be. 
Absolutely. Surrounding yourself with uh, great people is always a great North Star to have. I'm also curious, though, obviously with the whole pandemic, the last 90 or so days, um, but what's what's been the biggest challenge for you personally through, that, through those times? Yeah, so... There's been a couple challenges. I mean, internally here at the Ridge, we just made our, our biggest hire. We brought on, we've been growing quickly. So we're, we're a team of 25, but um, we're still pretty nascent as far as like the company structure. So we just made like our biggest marketing hire, um, like our head of paid social essentially. And we did that in the middle of the pandemic. It was all remote. I still haven't met this woman in person. She's like 40 days in now, 50 days in. And uh, and that was a challenge. And it was like, um, I mean, I take a lot of responsibility for someone's success, especially when they're starting is like, you know, I feel like it's my responsibility to give them what they need in order to be successful. Um, so when we're bringing on someone as important as like, who's going to manage our ad budget, you know, on the day to day, it took a lot. And then with this uh, added factor of like, not being able to see this person, not being able to sit in the same room, like we're just in, we were, you know, we spent the first three days on just like hours and hours of zoom calls it was exhausting, a struggle. It's worked out super well. I'm so glad to have her on the team. She's been a, a, a total lifesaver, but absolutely challenging for like a couple of weeks. That's awesome. Yeah, I just want to quickly switch gears, maybe jump into a little bit more marketing speak uh, for our listeners. Um, yeah, I'm curious to get your perspective on how the marketing industry has changed from when you first started out of college to, to now. Sure, yeah. So when I first really got into like, direct response, like social media marketing. I think, I, I mean, I think there was a pretty common playbook playbook. I worked at a couple agencies. A lot of the brands we worked with were, um, you know, they do like the Kickstarter Indiegogo. This is how Ridge started as well, but Kickstarter Indiegogo, you get that initial jumpstart, then you're moving on to Facebook and other paid channels. And really the arbitrage opportunity there was, um, the arbitrage opportunity there was just, just from a cost perspective that you didn't need the best site experience you didn't need the best retargeting strategy, retention strategies. You didn't, you know, a lot of people weren't weren't worried about LTV in 2014, and that's just dramatically changed. I think as these ad platforms sort of like, as more advertisers enter and as they try to become more profitable, we have to tactically get much better, and you have to really think about like incrementality, and you have to think about LTV, and you have to think about a lot more robust marketing strategies. And that's been, that's been a lot of fun, honestly, the past, I would say like three years has really been like moving from like a, a paid media arbitrage opportunity to like, okay, let's figure out how we can build something that really scales, um, despite not having this like massive cost advantage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of robust marketing strategies and really scaling a brand, what's been the most successful marketing campaign that you've ever worked on? Could be at the Ridge or... Uh, your agency where you uh, first started, but uh, yeah, what's 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 been the most successful campaign for you? Yeah, there's been a couple. I worked with a. This was 2017, the end of 2017 or so. No, it was 2018, and it was a uh, it was a Kickstarter campaign, and it was around reusable straws. Now, this was this was right around when like all the McDonald's was talking about getting rid of plastic straws, you know, here in, I live in LA, Santa Monica banned them at one point. Delta was talking about like having some sort of plastic alternative for their straws. There had just been this um, viral video on Facebook of a turtle that had a plastic straw, like that had, that had, I think it had entered like through its nose or something. And everybody was concerned about like 
uh, single use plastic and how we can eliminate that. So I worked on a big Kickstarter brand that, um, or a big Kickstarter project that was solved this in some way. And, uh, and that was a, that was a very successful marketing campaign. It was great to see just like product market fit, but then also compounded by the idea of like, it was a, it was in the middle of this movement towards like more reusable plastic and, uh, sort of utensils and things like that. And, it, that sort of thing. It's just like millions of dollars on Kickstarter. And then by the time Q4 rolled around, we were doing like millions of dollars a month. And uh, that was just, it was just like a bunch of factors that were involved that compounded together. And then we had like strong creative and and we had like a really, we had really great messaging. We spent a lot of time about like, how do we want to talk to the, who these customers are? How do they want to be spoken to? How do we speak like that? And just felt it like, just felt like on an execution level, we were really there. And then had the wind at our backs with everything else. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. The uh, uh, <laughs> the Kickstarter campaign with the turtle. Yeah, I remember that uh, that uh, <laughs> piece. But uh, yeah, it's all about creative and messaging when you're launching a successful brand. But uh, maybe what are some of the biggest challenges from your perspective when launching a new marketing initiative or even a brand? Um, what are some of those key pieces and challenges? Yeah. So when I, I, I talk about this pretty frequently when it comes to launching a new brand, I mean, I think, so I, I'll double back a little bit. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people launch brands in 2013, 14, 15, and you could open up a, a marketing channel like Facebook ads or Google ads or whatever else. And you had this cost arbitrage that you could really like create a lot of value with. I feel like that arbitrage opportunity is more or less closing. So when it comes to starting a brand, I think it comes down to thinking about distribution very early on. Um, you're th- you have to think about product, you have to think about audience, and then you have to think about like sort of what channels and like what pipes are existing that I can tap into where like we can reach customers really cost effectively, you know, turn that into a profitable business. So that's what I always talk about. I think that's the biggest thing is, is just distribution and, and marketing channels and thinking about that from day one. And if you can find something where your product aligns with like maybe an untapped or underutilized marketing channel. It's, a, it's just a lot easier to make that work. Absolutely. What are some of your favorite marketing channels right now or even social media networks? We try to be really early to, so we have, we benefit from a couple of things. One where we predominantly sell wallets, which is like basically every guy carries a wallet. So we have a large addressable market. And with that, we, we try to get on platforms as early as possible just because there are a lot of wins for us when we can reach uh, like net new people. So like we were, we were the first, we were one of the first big advertisers on Snapchat. We were brought up on one of their earnings calls in 2018 as like their, their DR, their like direct response success case study. And, you know, Snapchat's great, but like a lot of it for us was just like, Oh, we were reaching millions of new guys that like didn't know that the ridge existed. So Snap was a big channel for us for a long time, still kind of hit or miss. We've been on TikTok for a while. We spend a, a significant amount of money with YouTube influencers. We think that there's a, a large opportunity there. We think that that sort of channel we're excited about because um, we feel like while we're reaching new people and like you know, where it's a, it's a, uh, it's kind of a viable advertising channel. We're also creating goodwill, which doesn't really happen on any other channels. YouTube creators and their audience have such a close relationship that if we can 
partner with their channel, if we can sponsor them and support that creator, typically that audience responds well to us. Whereas, you know, nobody's, nobody's particularly excited that we're handing ad dollars over to Facebook or Google. So like YouTube influencer deals is, is kind of a big one for us recently. And then we're super diversified at this point. We've had some success with uh, native email ads, partnering with like large publishers to become a part of their, um, their email newsletter. So things like the hustle morning brew, uh, everybody's doing it now from like Hearst uh, publications to like much smaller email newsletters. We get in on those deals. Those seem to be working out well for us. So really, we just try to find, you know, where people are spending time, where attention exists and and whether we can. Uh, it also, it depends on the relevant audience so we can, you know, insert a good ad in there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was uh, influencer marketing. And I know that's kind of a hot buzzword in the industry right now, but uh Curious to know what, maybe what's one of the most exciting marketing trends at the moment for you, from your perspective? Uh, for us, it's it's YouTube for sure. Um, like far and away, YouTube is just like when you think about it, the creator and their audience have a much closer connection, I think, than like an Instagram influencer and their audience. These YouTubers are creating, you know, like it's a couple minutes or upwards. It can be upwards of an hour. That sort of relationship that they're developing with their audience is just so much more intimate and so much more meaningful than like somebody that you're following on Instagram and, you know, see their photos as you scroll through your feed. And there's not a lot of advertisers there. I'm still, we've been doing it for a couple of years now. I'm surprised there's not more. So, uh, that's, that's as far as influencer goes, that's a big one for us. We're exploring TikTok some more. TikTok's nice. It's, it's video content. But it also has like the virality of something like Twitter, which is cool. So there's like, there's a much higher ceiling, I think, for sponsoring a TikTok influencer than there is an Instagram influencer. And then because of that virality, and then, you know, it's similar to like Twitter, you just don't get like the video content that you do on TikTok. So like the, the, the actual contents of the sponsored post is a little more immersive on a place like, like TikTok. So yeah, that's kind of how we're thinking about influencers on the on the different social platforms oh very cool yeah one thing i really want to touch base or uh, touch on with you uh was uh successful inbound or even digital marketing strategy uh you 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 mentioned earlier in the interview that uh, you had your own agency and you worked with a bunch of brands on strategy and digital marketing Um, but it'd be interesting to get your perspective on maybe what are some of the components of a successful inbound or digital marketing strategy so inbound just for clarification, inbounds like like a lead gen campaign. Is that what you're thinking? Ah, uh, yes, yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a great question, and it's funny because uh, I, I work with a lot. Like probably eighty, ninety percent of my time has been on like D to C brands. So it's DR. It, it's super consumer focused. Uh, the metrics are a little easier, I think, to manage than than like an inbound marketing strategy. But I've done a bit of it, and really, what I've always thought it comes down to is just like like really helpful content, valuable content, like providing that value up front, figuring out what you can do as far as like capturing contact information and getting opt-ins, developing that relationship and just continuing to provide value. And then when that person has a need that you solve, it's, it's a infinitely easier sell. One of my, we brought on a, a, a new partner recently called Bouncex and they do some really interesting stuff with, uh, abandoned card emails that we don't need to get into too much, but, uh, they have amazing content marketing and like they do these retail pulse lives where the, the founder of uh, Bouncex does like a little webinar with, uh, the founder of an agency in New York called within. And 
incredibly valuable. And it's like, it's the one thing where I like, I'm tuning in and I'm learning and I'm taking away things every time. And it makes me feel really good about spending money with BounceX or like, you know, before we got on, it was like, oh yeah, I can read the case studies. And then I feel really good about opting in and doing things like that. So I feel like that's really what it comes down to is like easing off the, the, the gas on like trying to close a sale and more of, uh, you know, providing value up front. Absolutely. And I love that provide value up front piece. That's uh, something I really agree with as well. Some, uh, this next question is a little bit out of the box. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you, what's uh, maybe what's something that's true that maybe nobody agrees with you on? Yeah. So, so where my mind immediately jumps is like, I really geek out on like attribution and setting up like figuring out what metrics we want to look at to, to analyze and like measure the performance of certain channels. And I don't think anybody disagrees that that's important. Um, what I will say is I'm, I'm constantly surprised at how overlooked some of those things go. I mentioned earlier, I mentioned incrementality and that, that's been like a lot more of a focus for us just with how diversified across all of our marketing channels we are and like how we're moving to like, channels that, that are a little bit easier to, to measure. Like, you know, we're on TV now and we're in direct mail and we do some out of home advertising and things like that. So there's a lot to do, even like, even YouTube has a big attribution problem. And I constantly geek out about, I'll get on this soapbox quickly is how, uh, Google display and YouTube within a single Google ads account is by default last click. So you'll lose all conversion data to your lower funnel campaigns, like branded keywords or search or something like that. Um, and it always surprises me how few people uh, like really think about that and have, have gotten to understand how attribution works within their Google ads account. Because what you end up needing to do is doing all this wonky stuff with like audience building and separate Google accounts and things like that to solve for attribution. And uh, yeah, it's just like that. I think going those extra steps and like developing intimate knowledge of a given ad platform and figuring out, you know, exactly how you need to set things up to best benefit your business is, uh, it's not always done. And it's because it's hard to do. Like I, like the Google thing is like, is weird to explain. Uh, there's not a lot of, there's not, there's not a lot written on it. Like your Google reps aren't all that forward about telling you how it's set up. So yeah, there's all, there's all sorts of reasons why like people might not be like, geeking out on attribution or like really going through it to the degree that they should. But to your point, I don't think anybody's disagreeing, but that, that, that's what I'll go with here. Okay. No, that's a, that's a good, that's a good point. I just wanted to rewind a little bit. So you, you mentioned provide value up front to really get that inbound interest into your, into your brand and company. So I want to ask you what's, uh, what's maybe something or who have you admired other marketers or, brands uh, when they market their products or services? Sure. So from a, so I'll give two answers. I mean, um, I really like, this is such a cop out. I really like Apple. I like Dyson. Those, these are my two. I think they're similar in that they let the product kind of speak for itself. They do a lot on the branding side to like establish trust and, and prestige and like be a premium brand and things like that. But I think there's something to be said about like understanding where the consumer's getting value. And for both of those brands, it comes from like their use of the product. I've got a Dyson vacuum that I just got my dad for Father's Day because it's an incredible product. I really like it. And they're so thoughtful about how it's developed that from the branding side, they don't need to 
necessarily sell you on like anything crazy. Like they're not, they're not doing anything outlandish on the brand side. They know that they've got a premium product. They want to get it in your hands. They want you to enjoy it. Like, and that's, that's how they create the affinity with the customer. Same with Apple. I think they're, they're kind of in a similar boat. And then the, the flip side of that are, are the, the products and brands that might not be as differentiated on the, on the product level and therefore rely on brands, their brand more. So I think like the big one in the DTC space is like a way they don't, they don't do anything particularly interesting on the product level. It's a good suitcase. I've, I've bought one of those before as well. But uh, as far as where they create the affinity with their customer, it's done at the brand level. They want you to make you feel really good about having bought with a way. They want to do their magazine. They want to talk about travel. They want you to give you this kind of aspirational persona that, that you can sort of strive for. And, and there, there are lots of brands that are doing that really well. My favorite's um, Manscaped. And uh, we look at them all the time because they're, you know, predominantly sell to men. And they're just one, they have like the branding locked in. They're super fun. They've got all this like crazy copy. It's like a men's grooming type of product. So it's like great from the brand perspective. And then like tactically and on the execution side, I'm just always impressed by what they're doing. Whether it's like out of home, they also sponsor like the MMA, they sponsor the Cornhole League. They do all sorts of stuff. So they like nailed this brand. They know it resonates with a lot of men, and then they're able to like pump that out into channels a lot of brands aren't thinking about. So they're what they're one of my my go tos to talk about. Yeah, no, those are great examples. I, re- I me as well. I really love what Manscaped is doing. They're killing the brand game. It's like what I like to call it. And great product. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll plug them too. I've also got one of those. Given them as multiple gifts. So uh, they've they're they're a little bit different because on the product side, they've got the brand locked in. They've got they're awesome. Like you tell, I'm very complimentary. But they've got the brand locked in. They've got the marketing locked in. And then on the product side, very well differentiated. You know, they talk about like there's not a lot of razors that are that have specialized features for their use case. So they're kind of winning on all fronts. So yeah. Anyway. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, What's maybe what's one one of the biggest misconceptions about launching a new marketing campaign or a brand? Oh, the biggest misconceptions. You know, I see people get a little hung up, I think, on I think people don't quite realize like what's going to move the needle for them and will end up getting hung up on on details that that won't. So like uh you know, there's like best practices for like what you want to have set up for a brand and let's say like for for email you want to have like your behavioral email setup and those automations. You want to have your welcome series, your post-purchase, things like that. And and those are all very important and and good to have set up. But I, I've seen, you know, founders and and marketers get hung up on like the copy in the third email of their their welcome series um, and things like that. And I, I think it's easy to get hung up on those things because they're easy to edit and you know you'll feel like you're you're providing value in some way. But like where the where the real value will be created is identifying that like, you know, the main benefit of these email automations as we're launching is just the existence of them. Now let me focus on, uh, you know, the landing page or like, what does our ad creative look like? Or, you know, you can go back as far as like, what are, what do our cogs look like? So we can tolerate certain marketing performance or advertising performance. What is our, is our fulfill, does our fulfillment make sense? Is it, can it be free? Things like that. So, um, yeah, the biggest misconceptions are like, just around the details that really matter, that move the needle and, and making sure you're not getting hung up on other ones. Just to just to start. And then it's like, then you can A, B test your welcome series as much as you want. All those things are super important to continue iterating upon. But um, 
a lot of people like to get hung up and like will delay launches and things like that because uh, they're getting stuck on unimportant details. Right, right. And this kind of segues into my next question for you, uh, Connor. If you had to say maybe an extra 50% of budget, how would you spend it and why? Yeah, that's a good question. So I do you follow uh, HIMS at all in their marketing? Oh, yeah. I love HIMS, yeah. Yeah, so they're another brand that's like from the get-go has been really savvy about like what advertising channels they're unlocking and things like that. And they do fun things like... Uh, they'll do um, the little like deodorizers that they'll put in urinals um, at like sports stadiums. They'll sponsor those. And like, I know that they, I saw at one point they'd gotten some press about um, coasters that they had put in uh, San Francisco at bars. They'd started providing coasters and things like that. And it's, I think those are really fun for a brand that's just starting. I think it's really difficult to like get those channels to work in the sense like you're seeing a return on them. Um, and then like scaling them becomes a lot more difficult, but for someone like us, if we were just to be given 50% more budget, I'd really like to explore some of those like untouched channels and just get really interesting about like who we can partner with, where we could potentially get in front of consumers, things like that. Absolutely. So just a few more questions here for you, Connor, uh, before we let you go. What's we, we kind of touched on branding and marketing, but I'm curious to get what your perspective is, the relationship between uh, marketing and sales. Yeah, because uh, no, that, that, that's a great question also. I've always thought there's like some subjectivity involved here, but I, I've always thought of marketing as more of like a, a nurturing process. And sales is that as well, like I'm sure a sales rep would say like, there's just as much nurturing involved in that process, but marketing really feels like just because it can be so immersive as far as like the different touch points and like the sort of data that you have on someone and like what that can trigger that, um, you're really, it, you can be a little bit more, um, you can, <laughs> people will also disagree with this. I think there can be a little bit more finesse in how you're like nurturing someone down a funnel, especially when it comes to, like digital marketing, um, how you're delivering content, things like that. Um, and then I've always thought of sales as a little bit more like you're closing the loop there. Like you've got to, when it comes down to like getting someone that like to input their credit card information, um, you might need like, more personalization than digital marketing could ever really provide. So it's like, then you, that's why you've got SDR reps and, and account managers and things like that to sort of step in and provide that, that last touch point um, and things like that. And that's, that's, you know, the way I just mapped it out, you can kind of see how they work together, um, which is kind of the whole idea. No, absolutely. Uh, yeah, before we get out of here, uh, maybe what's some of the biggest things uh, you or maybe The Ridge does that people don't know about? Um, yeah, so I, there's two things. One, like on the, on the wallet side, um, we, one of the benefits of the wallet, especially like just versus traditional wallets is, is where we don't have any leather in our products or our carbon footprint is actually very small compared to like the, the typical leather men's wallet. Um, so that's something we care about, like environmental issues in that sense. And that's probably something we don't tout as much as we could. Um, like we have, you know, uh, we have a number of people who are vegans on the team. Uh, we're also in, you know, Santa Monica, West LA. I think we over index and, and, and that sort of, um, 
lifestyle. But like one of the things that resonates with them is the idea that like we don't have any leather in our products, no animals are harmed, things like that. Um, so that's one thing that like is kind of a core component of the company to some degree that we don't often talk about. Um, but I like to. And then the second one is, uh, you know, I mentioned the agency and how I got involved with Ridge uh, initially. And one thing that I think is interesting is the agency still operates uh, and we work with other D2C brands as Ridge Growth. It's called uh, the Ridge Growth Agency. It's growth.ridge.com. And uh, I think that's interesting. I think that there's a lot to, um, there's a lot of benefits that come from working with agencies just because you end up learning and getting opportunities across a number of different brands and they can quickly learn from one another. So people feel all sorts of ways about whether you want to internalize a, a, a service or not. Um, but we, we found a lot of benefit as Ridge Wallet that, uh, of, of having this agency operate internally and then vice versa, these brands that we're working with, um, from Ridge growth agency benefit from everybody else that's involved. So I think there's something to be said about that. These, these brands that are developing like, DR skills and processes and then externalizing those services. And then that sort of coming, that becoming mutually beneficial for both, both the brands and the agency. And then, you know, everybody working together kind of. So I think that's another interesting component that we never talk about, but it's something we have going on internally. Oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I had no idea myself either. So <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's like, we, we don't, we don't tout it too much. Um, I I've taught, I've heard about other, um, you know, I, I think as brands become larger and, and they develop certain processes, I think we'll see more and more brands like externalizing the, that skill set. I think I had read about, you know, like Hims and uh, Atomic are kind of that way. And they're just like this development house that kind of spits out brands and then all those brands are going to benefit from one another. So like, I don't think I'll be at all surprised when other large brands begin uh, sort of using themselves like a platform and either like... Uh, externalizing it and becoming like an agency or just like using the skills that they've developed in-house to launch multiple brands, which I think is, I'm super excited about. I think, I think brands should be like, you get to a certain scale where it just makes sense for you to start developing new uh, revenue streams. And whether that's like, you know, an agency piece or, you know, software that you've spun out or whatever else. I think that those are, those are things that more and more brands will realize they have the ability to do. No, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm also excited for the uh, future of the D2C uh, industry. And I, yeah, like what you're saying, I think there's lots of room for innovation and uh, growth there as well. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think a lot of that comes down to um, people trying to, like the, the diversifying of revenue streams and like figuring out how else you can, you've created a company and a brand and like how else can you generate revenue from that? Um, like comes down to, advertising costs becoming more expensive on Facebook and Google and brands uh, needing to be increasingly creative in how they're monetizing like the value. So whether it's like, uh, you know, like cross brand affiliate deals or like externalizing agency services or whatever else, I, I think it's just like inevitable that, that these, these large brands that have large audiences and, and very valuable skill sets will just find new ways to monetize them. Absolutely. Um, so the last couple questions here, um, maybe what's something, uh, you're proud of that maybe we haven't touched on, uh, on the podcast yet. Proud of, I think, um, we've got a wonderful team here at Ridge, like everyone I work with, uh, everyone, every, everyone we've brought on and, you know, the founders, I think we've got like a, 
a strong company culture that values like um, both performance, but then also uh, friendship, you know, and things like that. And uh, that's something I'm proud of. It's not something I can all uh, like take credit for or, or much credit at all for. Um, but it's something that like I really value that's come of, of, of working for, for the Ridge as long as I have. Um, so yeah, that, that's been a, a super important part of my, you know, personal and, uh, personal life and business career. Awesome. Uh, where can our listeners connect with you or maybe even the awesome team at uh, the Ridge online? Sure. So you can email me Connor at Ridge.com. Um, that'd be the best place to connect with me. And then, uh, yeah, if you want to talk to anybody else at, at the Ridge team, you can email me and I'll, I'll connect you to the, the appropriate party. So would love to, uh, would love to talk to anybody interested in talking about launching brands or, you know, whatever else. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate that, Connor. Uh, it's really been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, we usually like to end the podcast, uh, marketing and branding is all about standing for something and having, a, a, a stance for something. So, my question to you to end the podcast is what's maybe something that's out of the box, uh, a stance that you ever taken and why? Um, yeah, so I'm going to end up touching on my, my last answer because I, I like one thing I hold really strongly uh, for the D to C space and, you know, digital marketing in general is that, uh, is that as things evolve and like, um, as will become, will have to become less dependent on certain advertising channels is that you constantly just have to be seeking out creative and sort of like, uh, unpopular solutions. So like, um, you know, I meant, I like, I, I, I mentioned quickly like cross brand affiliate deals and it's just like, yeah, if you had told, um, you know, Warby Parker five years ago that like brands would have to end up, you know, making affiliate commission by referring their audiences to one another. It's just like, Oh yeah, that's not like, that's not the D to C vision that we were sold on. Um, but I think it's something that we're going to have to evolve into and we're going to have to, uh, yeah, develop these new revenue streams. If you want to, you know, continue growing and evolving and surviving. Um, so that's something I, I think is relatively unpopular. Um, especially when you contrast it with like, you know, direct to consumer was all about being digitally native and owning the customer and like, and you've got this customer for life. And now all of a sudden it's like, we have to kind of change what the definition is of a DDC brand and what it takes to continue growing and, and things like that. So, um, I think that's something that, that people can definitely have qualms with, but something that I definitely think is, is inevitable. I love it, Connor. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Of course, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of the CMO and Joe podcast has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more business strategies and tactics to help you create the profitable and successful business you've always dreamed of. And don't forget to rate and review so we can continue to bring you the best content. See you on the next episode.